I'm Matt Pikin, the arts producer with Blue Ridge Public Radio. On a recent weekday afternoon, I asked people in Asheville's Pack Square how they define the arts. I think that arts is people figuring out new ways to think about how we interact with the world. I would define the arts as an expression of what it's to be human. I'm thinking about drawings and pictures and culture and stuff like that. I think that arts can encompass anything from like, you know, traditional painting and sculpture art to performance art and street art, graffiti, more alternative forms of art. So I think it really encompasses everything. The arts are everywhere and is the enhancement to the life that's all around us. Artists color our communities, bring creative thinking to challenges and issues, and expand our understanding of the world. But quantifying that impact, showing the value artists contribute, is often difficult beyond economics and hard numbers. Many in the arts struggle to sell their work or simply work in ways that isn't sellable. Because of that, even before the pandemic, economic instability was an everyday reality for many with careers in the arts. This is BPR News Presents The Porch. Today we explore this question. If we all benefit from the work and presence of artists, what is our collective responsibility to publicly fund the arts? Over the next hour, you'll hear about the funding for nonprofit arts organizations here and elsewhere, some of the challenges common to artists in Western North Carolina, and expand the bounds of how you might see the arts contributing to your community. For centuries, the arts were seen as expressions of ideas, a painter or composer or writer or playwright or choreographer making work, sometimes with other people, and presenting it to passive audiences. But over the past half century, many in the arts have created work to engage their communities and a broader public. The arts can map our history, such as a project marking the African-American music trails of eastern North Carolina. I didn't have to read this. I lived it, you see. So I have first-hand knowledge. So while I'm alive and I can tell the story, I tell the story. A book about the African-American music trails is a roadmap for visitors featuring interviews with more than 90 musicians spanning jazz, R&B, funk, gospel, hymns, blues, rap, marching bands, and beach music. The arts can be the theatrical work Ezel, Ballad of a Landman, which illustrates the collision of the extractive resource industry and intergenerational trauma. I tell them I'm Ezel Parsons. I'm here representing the Lexington Oil and Mineral Futures, Inc., and I'm here to talk to you about your land. The show is rooted in Kentucky, but the creator, Bob Martin, has toured it all over the country. Performances of Ezel, Ballad of a Landman, also include nature walks, a shared meal, and dialogue. The arts can be an artist working with police and fire departments, as detailed in this report from South Carolina Public Radio. The celebration of the opening of Seeing Spartanburg in a New Light. Nine public art installations were unveiled across the city with the purpose of building relationships between police and neighborhoods through a collaborative... Disruptive art happened this past year through the lens of Richmond, Virginia's graffiti-covered Confederate monuments, transforming a towering reminder of our nation's racist origins into a space for community gathering. A lot of people say this is vandalism. I say it's art. You know, that statue represents... It represents slavery. And even when... Nationally, the latest study from Americans for the Arts found the nonprofit arts industry supports 4.5 million jobs and generates $27.5 billion in revenue back to local, state, and federal governments. That's more than five times what the nonprofit arts industry receives in government allocations.
Speaking of which, before we go further, here's a very short quiz. In dollars and cents, how much of your state income tax dollars every year do you believe go toward the arts? I've never thought about it in a per capita. That is a fantastic question. I have no idea, to be quite honest. Maybe a few hundred dollars. Less than $2,500. Let's say 10 bucks a person. In between $500 and $1,500. I'll say $25 a year. Less than $100 annually. Per annum, I would guess we're probably paying something on the order of five cents. The answer? 77 cents per year. 77 cents. Wow, that's crazy. That's insane. Ouch. Like, what, what matters to a community? I think that's incredibly low. I would like to see it at least 10 times that. Perhaps even more stunning, even at just 77 cents. North Carolina ranks 22nd in the nation in per capita arts funding, with only pennies separating about a dozen states in the middle. All those fractions of individual taxes go to the North Carolina Arts Council. The State Arts Council grants just under $6.5 million each year directly to artists and organizations and to the state's 100 regional arts councils, which in turn grant money to artists and organizations in their regions. These grants range from as little as several hundred dollars to individual artists to tens of thousands of dollars to the largest arts organizations. Nate McGacky is the executive director of Arts NC, the state's arts advocacy agency. He's here to give us a little perspective on arts funding from the state. The Arts Council infrastructure in North Carolina is more robust than in many other states, particularly in the Southeast. From a funding standpoint, I think that we do really well for where we are nationally. Nationally, we rank in terms of per capita art spending. We're about 24th, which is not high. But if you look at a listing of total state budget per capita spending, we're number 49. So by comparison to that, we actually rank pretty high in terms of arts funding at the state level. So arts funding from the state comes entirely from legislators. And you recently hosted Arts Day, an annual event in which you and other arts advocates from around the state are lobbying legislators about the value of the arts. I know you were waging a campaign asking legislators to raise the per capita spending on the arts to $1. Tell me what you're asking for this year. So right now we're about $6.3, $6.4 million in recurring arts grants through the North Carolina Arts Council. How do we get that to a reasonable amount of a dollar per person, right? Which would, I think right now would be about $10.5 million. So that became our initiative because it was the idea that we needed something simple that people could remember. But yet at the same time, there were some very real needs and some very real uses for those dollars as well. So that was our message for a while. Admittedly, Dollar for the Arts sort of got set to the side last March, and we became very much focused on the pandemic, obviously. Our ask to the General Assembly this year is a program called Restart the Arts, $8 million non-recurring allocation to $4 million in each of the next two years of the biennium, specifically for funding to restart arts programming for the public. Dollar for the Arts has not gone away. We still think that it is a reasonable goal. And I think we'd like to see that at the federal level as well, where I think it's closer to 65 cents or something per capita. Just to be clear, that $8 million over two years that you're asking for is in addition to regular biennial funding. Absolutely. So that would be in addition to the annual, I think it's $6.3 or $6.4 million um, that, that the Arts Council gives out in grants each year. 
between the surplus that the state has and what would be a relatively nominal uh, increase to get to $1 per capita. Both of these would depend on the legislature to be sympathetic to these things. What kind of feedback were your advocates hearing or what's your insight into the realism and challenges to make these things happen? I think that there's a willingness to invest in the arts. I mean, yes, you could certainly say that, you know, within the scope of the state budget, you could, you know, increase this by 40, 50%. But, you know, I think legislators, obviously, they're not just working for the arts. You know, that's, I'm, I'm just working for the arts, but legislators have to consider the entire state budget. And a state budget can only realistically grow without new sources of revenue within the framework. So, while certainly we want to see a, a greater investment in the arts, a lot of what we hear back from legislators is, yes, we hear what you're asking for. We understand that reasoning. We're going to continue to invest. And I think in this moment with Restart, we're, we're seeing significant investments. And I would say that even prior to that in funding that we got, say, in the 2019 budget, the increased investment coming into the arts was outpacing maybe the overall increase of budget spending across the state government. However, even though with that outpacing, it's not taking us to a 60% increase up to the dollar for arts that we we're asking for. So it just takes time to build these things up over time, unless, of course, you find a new revenue stream. That was Nate McGacky, Executive Director of Arts NC. We'll come back to him in a little bit, but here's a little more context on where we sit in state allocations devoted to the arts. These numbers fluctuate year to year, but here are some comparisons elsewhere. South Carolina taxpayers are each giving 84 cents in their state income taxes to the arts. Georgia, just 14 cents each year per taxpayer. Arizona is the nation's only state in which not a single penny from taxpayers is steered to the arts. By the way, if North Carolina did achieve $1 in per capita spending on the arts, that would lift the state to 17th in the country. So which state is number one? It's not New York or California. It's Minnesota. This year, that state is funneling $6.37 per taxpayer to arts and culture, more than $30 million a year in total. That's because in 2008, Minnesota voters approved a sales tax increase, three-eighths of a cent on every dollar of purchases. It may not sound like much, but the tax brings in more than $300 million every year. Arts and culture organizations and initiatives get close to 20% of that, with the rest earmarked for the outdoors, clean water and parks and trails. What's unique about this tax is Minnesota voters amended the state constitution by approving it, meaning it can't legally be taken away or diverted to other uses by the legislature. It's in effect for 25 years or until 2034, and this money is in addition to normal arts funding every year. You might be asking, who dreamed up this funding mechanism? To find out, I spoke with one of the architects of that referendum, Sheila Smith, who recently retired as the director of the advocacy organization, Minnesota Citizens for the Arts. I started by asking how this odd coalition between advocates for the arts, outdoors, clean water, and parks and trails came about. Yeah, so a lot of ups and downs, six legislative sessions, various formats of coalition and fighting and coming to common understandings over six years. So. The original idea was brought forward by the hunting community who wanted to use current revenues from the state sales tax 
and dedicate that to land preservation. So there would be a good land for animals to live on so that they could be hunted. And they're only 17% of the Minnesota population hunt. And so they couldn't get a hearing. They just didn't have a big enough coalition. And the lead author at that time was complaining that he couldn't get a hearing. And so he was talking to Senator Richard Cohen, who was then chair of the finance committee and a good supporter of the arts. And he said, well, you know, why should we have a hearing to dedicate sales tax to your hobby? I'm interested in the arts and culture. You put the arts on there, I'll, I'll hear it. And of course, they all went nuts and hating that idea. But the author of the bill lives in a small town with an active arts community. And he understood that when there's a play going on in town, all the restaurants are full. It's good for town to have an active arts community in the same way it's good for town to be a draw for hunters and anglers in season because they're in the restaurants and bars too. So he said, okay, let's do it. So they put it on the bill and much to everyone's shock, it passed and then shot like a rocket to the Senate floor through a couple committees. And it showed the power of this very strange collection of issues that pretty much everyone on the committee had a reason to vote for it. So if you were a very conservative gun owner, member of the NRA, a hunting and angling kind of guy, you liked it because you've been trying to do this for a long time. If you were a greater Minnesota arts and culture supporter, you had a reason to support it. If you're a metro person who values the environment and the arts, then you had a reason to support it. So from there, there was a natural expansion of interest from just hunting and and anglers to also include the environmentals, as you would think of as the greens who want to preserve land, air and water. And then a natural expansion to parks and trails. And then the clean water people came in too. So by the end of six years... Lots of fighting over who's in, who's out. The change of power in the legislature from Republican to Democrat and back again throughout this six-year process. So it was really chaotic and took forever. And there were a million battles and it was super fun because it was so unlikely a thing because even we pushing for it weren't quite convinced it was going to work. How did you get around or how did, if not you personally, but how did this amendment get around the anti-tax ethos of modern day Republicanism? Well, I, I would think it's, it's more of a complicated story than that. You know, people love to simplify politics. It's black and white, but there's so much gray. The arts are a bipartisan issue, as is the outdoors. And people have their different reasons for supporting or opposing things. The anti-tax sentiment is just one sentiment among many. But I will say that in the end, the final, 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 final passage after six years of back and forth, and I'm not even going to go into it all, did hinge on whether the dedication of sales tax dollars was from current revenue and therefore it would be taken away from other interests or would it come from new revenue? And the final passage of it, I think, hinged on the idea that there were a lot of Republican folks who thought it probably wasn't going to pass. But at the same time, they had so many supporters of it that, well, let's let the people decide whether their taxes get raised. What changed once this did pass statewide voting in terms of the advocating around the arts? Well, we did two things. One was to ensure that we were always telling legislators how the funding was getting into their own communities in their own districts to really localize the information so that they understood it had a direct benefit to them and their constituents. And then the second piece was to document impact so that we would have documented evidence as time passed as to what the impact had been. Were there any new programs, anything that didn't exist before the Legacy Amendment that has been created because this was passed? Previous to the passage of the Legacy Amendment, you might have had an artist who did certain projects 
of a certain kind in a certain area. Then they got access to grants. They had a rising demand for whatever it is they were doing, whether it's classes for kids or whatever. So they applied for grants and they were able to grow and hire a staffer, apply for a C3, become a C3, hire more staff, serve more kids and so on over the last 12 years. But the whole world is a different place from when this passed. For example, individual artists now have a lot more opportunity to market their work online. And so you have Springboard for the Arts, which has simultaneously been growing over those over that time, providing more and more courses in how to make a living as an artist, how to do your taxes, how to do your finances, how to market yourself. So there's a growing sophistication on the part of artists about all of those things because of Springboard for the Arts, Springboard for the Arts, and these programs are funded by the legacy dollars. It's all an ecosystem that's being fed. It's not one thing. How can other states use what happened in Minnesota as a model to replicate? There have been different variations of this work done in other states. For example, the state of Washington passed a law that allows each county to hold a vote to see if they want to dedicate dollars to arts and culture. And so they're just getting started on having the county referendums. So that's a version. Cuyahoga County in Ohio passed one where they dedicated the sales tax from cigarettes to the arts and culture. And they're getting like $22 million a year just off cigarettes. One of the great models is the Denver Arts and Culture Heritage Trust, which was a collaboration between the arts and culture and zoos and some other entities. And it goes to the people as a referendum periodically. I think the arts and culture should attempt public referendums more often. Americans for the Arts keeps track of things like public referendums for the arts and culture, and they have shown that 90% of the proposals do pass. The public referendum is the important thing. What does the package exactly look like? It's going to vary depending on where you are. But the idea is what opportunities in any state or city or county for a public referendum are there? Give that a try. Sheila Smith recently retired as the director of Minnesota Citizens for the Arts. North Carolina isn't new to the notion of a collaborative referendum. Arts advocates in Mecklenburg County have twice brought proposals to voters, most recently in 2019. The big topic today, the sales tax increase vote for Mecklenburg County. Yeah, that money would fund the arts and parks programs, but opposers say the county has more pressing issues to deal with. It turns out the opposers prevailed at the polls with 57% of the votes against the tax hike. NBC Charlotte's Rad Berkey has been... Let's turn back to Nate McGill of Arts NC. I asked if he and his colleagues in arts advocacy had worked at building the kind of coalitions across different interest groups that could lead to a successful referendum in North Carolina. I had reached out to a few colleagues to have the conversation, and the sense was is that there probably was not in North Carolina in this moment an appetite for a tax increase, certainly not a, a sales tax increase, which made it very difficult to kind of think to what that next step is. I keep wanting to see something happen where it's a direct ask to voters. And if it can't happen in Charlotte, I wonder, can it happen anywhere? Does that make you and your colleagues gun shy to try to craft something that would be a a direct proposition to voters to go up to a dollar or something, whatever the ask would be? I would say that, to your point, the state is not right for a proposition around arts funding in this moment. Certainly, you know, a similar proposition failing in Charlotte, which many people thought that that would pass, and then to have it fail twice, I think is telling that that would be 
a much harder thing on a statewide campaign. So at the moment, we deal within the government structure we have, and we make the case to our legislators, because in the state of North Carolina, as is with many states and the federal government, the power of the purse resides in the legislative branch. And certainly we have those conversations with folks who are representative of every single district, whether or not it's urban or rural, whether or not they have an R, an I, or a D next to their name. And honestly, all of those conversations, generally speaking, are the same. There are philosophical differences within the parties about the role of government. But in my experience, we have seen a broad support for arts funding on both sides of the aisle. I think that the change we've seen at the General Assembly is in the last 10 years, we've seen more of a focus on arts in rural communities. There certainly has been a greater appetite to increase funding that is distributed on a per capita basis to ensure that all 100 counties are getting a equitable amount of funding. The grassroots funding that goes out to all 100 counties actually has increased as well as funding initiatives for touring into rural areas. But we have not seen as much willingness to increase funding for those programs. The majority of that program funding goes to urban areas. We've seen less willingness to invest more dollars there. In Western North Carolina, outside of Asheville, a lot of rural areas. Why do you think that's happened? You know, you want to fund what you see. And there are more rural legislators who are in positions of power just because of the nature of politics. There are more Republicans that are from rural areas. So they might not have an art museum or a a performing arts center. So the arts in their community are important. They probably have an arts council and they have several nonprofits that do really great work and they see that, but they don't have these larger institutions. So when you're talking about having access to those institutions, they don't feel as connected to it because it's not sitting within their borders. The point that we try to make with them is that all of those larger arts organizations that might be in Asheville have a reach to many of the surrounding counties. I know that uh, Diana Wortham or Asheville Art Museum is bringing in folks from not only outside counties, but other states and, and from all over the world. So that's part of the message that we're trying to get across is that while the building and the institution might not receive mail in your district, that the people from your district are still coming to experience those things. And also that a lot of those major, most of those major institutions are doing outreach into the surrounding counties to make sure that they're servicing their region and not just folks that happen to live within there. We turn our conversation to rural arts funding and programming when we return after this short break. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch on BPR News. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Porch from BPR News. Today, we pose the question, what is our collective responsibility to publicly fund the arts? I also stopped by Pack Square in Asheville recently to ask people why the arts matter to them and why we should pay for the arts. I grew up in Winston-Salem. You know, we got rid of North Carolina Dance Company decades ago because the state wouldn't fund it. It was, it was a tragedy. The arts will never pay for themselves. The, the cost of a ticket will never pay for a symphony orchestra. It'll never, ever happen. We have to have art. Again, it connects us to our history for future generations to be able to see what we have now. 
people do not see a direct return on investment with the arts. If you think about it, like a, a, at a restaurant, you have your entree, which is all your stem and all of that. Everyone always sees the arts as the dessert, as it's not necessary. If you want to have the spice of life, it is necessary. In our last segment, the director of the North Carolina Arts Council spoke of an emphasis at the state legislature on rural arts. There are 100 arts councils across the state. These councils re-grant money from the state to artists and organizations in their communities. They also produce their own events and offer arts education and experience programs through their local schools. Three of our regional ones, in Brevard, Waynesville, and Burnsville, are anchors of their communities, even with reduced staffing because of the pandemic. It's very easy to sometimes say that the arts are an economic driver for rural communities. And while they absolutely are, I believe there are also quality of life and other benefits that the arts provide to our communities. Neely Andrews is director of the Tow River Arts Council in Burnsville, On the measures of staff, budget, and programming, it's perhaps the most thriving of all our region's councils. The Tow River Council has two full-time and two part-time staff, operates galleries in Burnsville and Spruce Pine, and modernized its e-commerce platform for member artists just before the pandemic. Andrew says it all runs on an annual budget of just under $350,000. The arts sometimes may be seen as is not as accessible to people who didn't grow up around artists or arts organizations. And I feel like one of our strongest points as an arts council is that we can bridge that gap and we can say it's okay if you don't have the experience with art. It's okay that you've never been to a museum or a gallery. We're here for you. A lot of our donors really kind of latch on to that idea and that philosophy. And I, I really feel like we have people who want to support the arts just because they recognize the value of art for themselves. But we also have funders who support us because they recognize the value of art for our community. In Waynesville, the Haywood County Arts Council is behind downtown's popular monthly Art After Dark. It also runs a small downtown gallery and, outside a pandemic, offers art classes and a junior Appalachian musicians program to teach traditional mountain fiddle, banjo, and guitar. There's also a young audience program to 4th and 8th graders. On a scant $115,000 annual budget, in addition to raising money for programs it offers for free, the council has created ticketed events just to support its own operations. There are high hopes for the inaugural Smoky Mountains Bluegrass Festival this October. Still, the money arts councils raise for specific programs through grants, sponsors, and donors, such as for the Junior Appalachian Music Program, often doesn't cover the costs. There should be some additional funding. Lee Forrester is retiring in May as the executive director of the Haywood County Arts Council. I can tell you that the county does not provide any funding to the Haywood County Arts Council, and the county doesn't provide any funding that I know of to any of the arts organizations. The town of Waynesville has been helpful, but again, you know, if you're looking at $1,500, that doesn't go very far. When you consider the fact that the arts in a community promotes higher incomes, population growth, it attracts more workers and jobs, encourages visitor spending, The arts organizations provide a great deal to the county and that they would not have the revenue that they receive if it weren't for the arts. As it is, the Arts Council supports artists and organizations, but also competes for the relatively small pool of money from grants, sponsors, and donors available to area nonprofits. But Forrester doesn't view it as competition. 
we all cooperate. The Haywood County Arts Council helps to install art exhibits in the gallery at the Hart Theater. We work with advertising and helping to sponsor different organizations' events through our newsletter. We'll promote the Haywood Community Band. We'll promote the Haywood Choral Society events. We try to help them, and by helping them, they, we are helped. Brevard Music Center and Brevard College are the cultural epicenters of that city, which can obscure the more community-driven work of the Transylvania County Arts Council. A 38-member artist co-op gallery formed and operated by the council is a downtown fixture, and the council's arts and schools program is a major vein of youth arts education there. Joan Van Orman is a former council board member and now a consultant to the council's staff focusing on fundraising. Many of our donors and charitable foundations that we receive funds for say, this is for arts in schools. So we may get that check, but it immediately is flagged and goes to arts in schools. Like many of the rural councils, the Tow River Council grew in the 1970s from the needs of the dozens of painters, sculptors, and crafters living around Burnsville or affiliated with the Penland School in Spruce Pine. The visual arts are still most visible in the council's programming, but Andrews is working to not only diversify the art forms the council serves, but also the broader community. Council staff are partnering with a handful of community organizations inside and outside the arts, handling the setup and administration administration for projects that don't normally fall under the council's umbrella. This past year, to help get money into the hands of area artists, the council partnered with the Mayland Community College and Small Business Center to bring an e-commerce platform to artists who needed one. Having a staff that's open to having conversations with our community partners, like how can we have beneficial and honest and real conversations about how what we do can support what you do. And it, it's not all based in, well, what we think we can do for you is. It's more of a conversation about how can we help each other. And I think we're seeing more and more of that. And I think that's really important in rural communities because as you know, resources are limited here. And we don't want it to always be competitive because that's an easy thing for nonprofits to do sometimes. And it's important to take a step back and really look to see if what we're doing is beneficial for our community and are we really serving a need. And I think, especially now with the pandemic, a lot of folks are asking themselves, that is our mission really aligned with the work we want to do in our community and in rural communities that's more important than ever. Federal CARES Act money helped prop up arts councils in 2020 but even though programs and events are far from fully reopening directors expect similar help won't be there this year. Every spring representatives and supporters from arts councils all over North Carolina lobby legislators through an event called Arts Day. It happened virtually this year but the mission was the same building awareness about how the arts impact their communities and hopefully translate that awareness into financial support. Short of a referendum for new revenue streams passing directly through voters, North Carolina's arts councils will continue relying on state legislators year after year for their core revenue. Neely Andrews took part in the Arts Day sessions. There were some meetings with legislators who were on the Arts Caucus, and so they were very aware of the impact of the arts in Western North Carolina. And then there are some legislators that loved hearing about all of the educational programming we provide to the youth in our community, and they didn't know that we offer free music lessons to every middle school in Mitchell and Yancey County. 
I think by having programmatic conversations with them about the services we provide, help them make a connection to their own experience. Van Orman of Transylvania County takes a pragmatic view of the Arts Council's operations and finances. Like any organization, any entrepreneur, any business, any nonprofit, one has to look at their sources of income or income streams. The Arts Council's no different. And over the past couple years, our income has skewed more toward grants and we're working to build up the donor base and the sponsorship and having certain benefits for membership. But we just launched them in the midst of COVID. We want to, you know, take a look back and say, okay, going forward, what does it mean to be a member of the Arts Council? But there is a key difference between the nonprofit and for-profit sectors. Nonprofit arts organizations aren't built for profit. They're built for service. And no matter how imaginative or resourceful their directors are, most councils scrape to meet their budgets and keep existing programs alive. Western North Carolina is particularly challenged with a scarcity of larger corporations, which tend to be reliably large donors to the arts in their communities. Over the past two years, the Asheville Area Arts Council lost its building, which included a gallery and a handful of artist studios for rent, along with nearly its entire staff. The council is now down to one part-time director who does her advocacy work from home. The Tow River Arts Council is robust in staffing and budget compared to its peer councils. Neely Andrews attributes that to artist members who have lived in the area and been committed to the council for decades, along with a drive to modernize and remain relevant to a changing community. Still, is their model sustainable? Andrews and other council directors see it as an open question. We have found a lot of success in having conversations with our community and talking to them about perception and need and desire and really listening and thinking about what they're saying and how we can help and not just apply our programming because we think it's what they need. Arts councils all over the state have their calendars circled for May 3rd. That's the deadline to apply for one of the key pots of money distributed from the North Carolina legislature. While modest compared to their overall budgets, for Lee Forrester of Hayward County and other arts council leaders, state allocations are still their most stable source of revenue. The reality is, if you're not laughing, you're crying. And there's no point in doing that. So (laughs) we just keep chugging along. I'm Matt Pikin, and you're listening to The Porch from BPR News. After this short break, we dive into public education and how the arts and sciences collaborate. I'm Matt Pikin, and this is The Porch from BPR News. We've looked at where North Carolina sits in arts funding and been exploring the arts as a public good, asking the question, what is our collective responsibility to publicly fund the arts? An expansive definition of the arts is embodied in the ethos of STEAM education that places the arts alongside science, technology, engineering, and math in school curricula, with the eye on adaptive career skills and prep. Susan Riley is the founding director and CEO of the Institute for Arts Integration and STEAM in Maryland. I began my conversation by asking about what it means to bring the arts into what had formerly been known as STEM education. Arts integration is a teaching approach where you're connecting naturally aligned standards in a content area and an arts area 
and then assessing both of those equitably. So what that means, that's all education jargon, right? Yes, so what right. that means is that we're going to go take a look at, let's say I want to have a science lesson that incorporates visual art. Well, I don't want to use the visual art as kind of in service of the science, as though it's just there to support the science. And I don't want to do that with the science for the visual art. So what I'm looking for is a concept in science and in visual art that makes a natural connection. And then I'm going to create a lesson that teaches both of those things at the same time. And when I get to the assessment part, I'm going to look to see, can my students use the art component that I was teaching and the science component that I was teaching and do that well? So it's an exciting approach. It's something when you do it well and you do it with authenticity, we see incredible results. Talk about the benefit. Uh, what is the payoff of having this kind of integration for any of the other areas of study, science, history, sure. math, et cetera? What does the integration serve that wasn't happening before? So I think when we're integrating any content, right? but I happen to focus on the arts, it's encouraging students to take thoughtful risks. We have to engage in experiential learning in the arts. It helps us to persist in problem solving, embrace collaboration. And all of these are quickly becoming things that have a economic and humanistic reality in the 21st century. We're teaching those skills implicitly by integrating and research proves that. I mean, we can look back at 30 years worth of research in arts integration and in that philosophy and we see time and time again, the numbers are consistent. I mean, we're seeing 20% increases in student achievement across the board with students who are using this approach well, particularly with special education students, with students of varying populations. Well, first seeing this kind of across the board impact, and yeah. this has been documented for a while now, why do we continue to see disinvestment in the arts. If we're seeing these kinds of results, why do we have this disparity in funding? The public isn't necessarily aware that there are approaches like arts integration and STEAM. They're used as approaches with teachers. It's kind of education speak. We get lost in that. And so teachers are aware that these approaches exist, but parents are not. They've not been very well educated on those approaches and that they do work. And so when we try to increase arts funding, the conversation becomes, well, we need to spend time on reading scores because our reading scores are lower, or we need to spend more time in math because our math scores are lower. Why are we taking time away from that to focus on the arts when the conversation could really be when we integrate these well and we have distinct arts programs and then utilize the skills students learn in an integrated way? Our math scores are going to increase. Our reading scores are going to increase. And it's for the betterment of everyone. So why do people, not all people, but why do a, a preponderance of people, and certainly in a lot of uh, city governments and county governments, see the arts as an extra mm -hmm. and not as just as important with the S, T, E, and the M in state? Right. The arts have been labeled as like these liberal arts areas that it's nice to have, but not necessary because it's not a hard skill, a quote unquote hard skill, right? And that drives me crazy because creativity is not a soft skill. There are challenges that are involved to creativity that encourage us as humans to work through things in a way that we can't 
with distinctive kind of bucketed areas and keeping them isolated from each other. I think sometimes we feel like the things that are non-tangible, that are circling around feeling and emotive and humanistic qualities, they're not the harsh realities of what our economy needs. And I would argue that every day of the week. I mean, the things that are required in the arts are the exact same things that are required in math and science. We know that. So it's a matter of I need to get you an experience so that you can see what this looks like, because I don't think people understand what it looks like to be actively engaged in artistic study. You have clients, schools around the world. Can you make any broad comparisons about the challenges or the culture of trying to bring this into American schools with American ideology around arts or hesitancies uh, compared to Europe and other places that might already have a little more arts integration happening? Or have you seen any disparity there? It's definitely a little bit of a tougher sell in American schools because, again, we have this focus, this kind of obsession, if you will, with reading and math scores. And other countries don't necessarily have that same stressor. The easiest part elsewhere outside of the U.S. is that people understand the value of the arts in and of themselves. And it's such a beautiful part of their culture, particularly in Africa, in India, the arts are revered. It is a part of who you are as a culture. And so bringing them in is much easier there because it's simply who they are as a people. Susan Riley is the founding CEO of the Institute for Arts Integration and STEAM in Maryland. Perhaps one of the crowning examples of STEAM application in our region is the STEAM Studios run by the University of North Carolina Asheville. Since the studio opened five years ago, young robotics engineers and sculptors have collaborated on a range of projects, including the animatronic wake sculpture conceived by the artist Mel Chin that debuted in New York City and now sits in Asheville's South Slope. Sarah Sanders is the director and collaborative co-founder of the STEAM Studio. I began our conversation by asking Sanders about the sticking points for students coming from non-arts backgrounds to embrace this kind of cross-disciplinary education and way of working. I'll go ahead and say that that's a, a constant problem over the past five years. But initially, some of the most obvious things were this sort of us versus them idea from both sides. The way that the studio was developed is that I, with an engineering background, developed the machine shop and more of the metalworking side with the welding equipment. And then Brent Skidmore, my colleague from the art department, developed and built out the, the wood shop, which was more designed through an, an arts lens, through you know carving and doing more sculptural forms. However, there's a whole lot of overlap between the two. So engineering students will use woodworking equipment. But what was happening is that art students were referring to things in the machine shop as theirs and engineering students were referring to stuff in the wood shop as theirs and stuff in the machine shop as ours. And so it's sort of trying to break down the language of othering that was happening in the space. You know, early on, we built out a lot of the furniture and like the workbenches and the tables in the space and we built them together to try and model the ways that engineers and artists could work together on really simple stuff that is, you know, foundational to being able to work in this space. I know about some of the big projects like working on Mel with Mel Chin on his project. How does this integration happen more quietly on an everyday level? When you look at product design, that is an art and engineering artifact. 
you know, you, you are developing a functional object or a technological object, there's an emotional connection between the user and the object. You know, it's like, you know, think about a car as that you've got artists that are designing and sculpting the bodies of these cars and designing out the interior of them. And you've got engineers incorporating all of the technology and making it all, all work. You know, the iPhone is a, you know, ubiquitous example of art and engineering working together, you know, all sorts of stuff just in the products that we use on a daily basis. And then, you know, there's also the idea of the, the social sciences, engineering and art all kind of integrating together and this need for understanding the context in which these things are being created and not just pushing a technology on people, but making sure that it's actually needed and understanding what the impacts of those things are. And a lot of that design process comes from asking questions, which artists are notoriously good at, and engineers are notoriously good at answering questions. So it's kind of like this, this interplay. How important do you believe a thriving STEAM program is toward fostering a broader public understanding of the role art plays in our society? I mean, I think it's hugely important the more that students and people in general would benefit from working with and in the arts because it is such a freeing experience. When I think about engineering students starting to just play with stuff and play with an idea, play with like a material like an artist does, you can see the evolution of their ideas become so much more functional and in some ways, realistic, you know, sometimes engineers work solely in like the, the analytical world and then their ideas or their designs get sent off to somebody else to actually manufacture or produce. So when they're able to work on something that has more of an artistic element, they're able to play more and exercise that part of their brain. Integrating the arts into any discipline, I think, helps create empathy I think that as they're asking questions and trying to understand the why of what they're doing, then it kind of contextualizes all of that in this world that we live in. Let's talk about how you've seen it in your students and maybe okay. even within your faculty. Your program has been existing now for four years. So you would have had a chance to see an entire class of students come through potentially. Talk about what's working and what students are doing now that maybe they weren't doing four, three, four years ago in terms of integrating, collaborating conversations and career choice. So what's happening right now that's really exciting for us is that the students have initiated the development of a, of a student organization or student club. That's the, the STEAM club. So they're like working on projects that will get more students engaged and not just students from art and engineering, but students from all disciplines to come to STEAM and learn how to use these machines and learn how to work with these materials. They're, you know, thinking about, oh, what can we do to engage other students that might not have ever done anything like this before? And, and it's something that the students are doing. That's not coming from us. They value interdisciplinary work. They value what other students are doing and they value what they're doing and they want to share it. So I, I think that they're excited about the possibility that cross-disciplinary work creates. It opens so many doors and it's what's necessary to solve the problems that we're facing right now. We're not going to be able to solve all of these massive problems in the world with technological solutions only. It has to come from cross-disciplinary work and understanding all of the, the social contexts and 
economic contexts and cultures that are affected. We face massive problems between the racism in America and the catastrophic climate change and, you know, socioeconomic issues and food scarcity and all of the things that we're encountering right now. I think these students understand that it's not one discipline that's going to solve those problems. What's the funding source for your program? Is it something you have to a lobby for within the university every year? Is it a, is it always a fight? Is it a struggle? Talk about the support for your program. The initial support came through private foundations and we're still operating off of some of that support. So right now our funding is through a mix of private foundations, the, the university, and then the projects that we do. So, you know, we're, we're in a really challenging place with budget constraints. Our funding comes from the state, obviously, for, the, for UNC Asheville, but it's how those funds get allocated and how it all gets sorted out. I don't know. So yeah. what you're talking about is just advocating within the university for more funding has been a challenge. Yeah, funding has been a challenge for sure. What do you think can help change that dynamic, even within your own universe there at the, at the university? I mean, I really don't know. The budget stuff is not really something I can speak to other than the fact that we have to hustle for money. It's not ideal, but it's what we have to do to keep our doors open. It's not sustainable how we're doing it now. And it's really tricky to say it too, because I don't want to throw UNCA under the bus because UNCA is amazing. And the fact that we exist in the first place, I think speaks volumes for how much UNCA values cross-disciplinary collaboration. You know, I, I think that just like statewide, the budget is not great for education. You know, this is my dream job, but the thing that would make me leave is the lack of budget. Sarah Sanders is director and collaborative co-founder of UNC Asheville's STEAM Studio. I spoke with two current students in that studio and two graduates to get their takes on how arts integration has been crucial to their practical and thinking skills. Samantha Crane and John Sauvignet are studying mechatronics, as it's called. Crane opens our conversation by talking about what led her to the STEAM Studio. I've always painted and I've always drawn. I've always been drawn to the arts. And before I came here, I had a lot of ideas for like immersive art experiences. I was kind of naturally drawn to not just the engineering part, but the making aspect and, you know, design and creating and kind of blending art and technology. John, tell me a little of your backstory and what led you to STEAM. I originally was in, in finance and uh, then I got into renewable energies. And yeah, really, I don't really have much of an arts background, but I guess the more I'm around arts, the more I appreciate it. Just the idea of the collaboration between artists and engineers and, and more like science. I feel like just having those two very different minds come together creates like really unique and beautiful functional things. Talk about what you both were inspired to do and pursue when you entered the program and how has your time in the program affected that vision? Sam, why don't you start first? Being able to come to STEAM and get my hands dirty and actually make things. I mean, it's made me realize like how much work it actually is to, to make something. And like if I were to come up with some, you know, wacky art design in the future, I have an idea of how that's going to be built and the work that's going to go into it and the tools that are required for that and possibly the team that may be needed for that. 
I mean, I'm probably going to go into a traditional like engineering role, but on the side, I can start, I don't know, just like actually being an artist, which is what I want to do. John, you're coming from a different vantage. Tell me about what you saw as your career pursuit and how working with arts involved or integrated in your process has affected where you see yourself going. I still want to go into robotics for sure. But by being, I guess, in a space where there's so much different art and engineering going on, it's really like kind of widened my perspective, my worldview. Like Sam was saying, it's kind of built my confidence in being able to bring what, what's in my head to like a physical reality. So I guess I'm curious, just among your peers and others your age, do people think the arts are just as important as the ST? E and the M of STEM education. At UNC Asheville, I think the importance of the arts is emphasized more than at other universities. But in the mechatronics department, there is kind of a divide. There's some that view the arts as kind of an extra and unnecessary, and they want to focus on pure engineering. But then there is a large number of people that see the value of arts. And having Steam Studio here definitely helps broaden people's views on that. We're working on starting up the Steam Club here. The goal is uh, to give students kind of a structured, hands-on fabrication experience and collect the diverse ideas um, and expose students to different ways of thinking and really encourage that cross-disciplinary collaboration to create like these beautiful, unique projects. Like we want to create things that like haven't been created before. Like you have someone from the math department, chemistry, anthropology, art, engineering. You can really see how you can help improve, elevate other people's work and them elevate yours. Samantha Crane and John Sauvignier are current students at UNC Asheville's STEAM Studios. I also wanted to talk to a couple of graduates who have come through the program and are now making their way in large part through their studies at the STEAM studio, and I found the perfect pair. Caitlin Thomas and Kyle Ward met at the university, and they both are now working at Animax Designs in Nashville. They both worked on Mel Chin's Wake project, and I began our conversation by asking how that very intensive collaboration helped prepare them for the work they're doing today. We learned very clearly that it is all about the artist's vision, and it doesn't matter what engineering says, and we will do that. And currently, we both are in theme park animatronics, and they've already broken us, so they love us. (laughs) You just say smile and sure, and then you go to your boss and say, I need this amount of money to do that, and they're like, okay, we'll handle it. We we got very acquainted with the concept of someone asking for outrageous ideas to be created and pushing the bounds of what's possible. One of our bosses just recently, I can't tell you what project it was on, but he just recently commented on a project and was like, you will never see anything like this ever in a million years in industry because no one will ever ask you to do this. It's just pushing the bounds of what industry would expect from an engineering design like they asked for all sorts of like can you make a dragon that can fly but not be attached to anything and like can you build this thing but also make it walk by itself can you at all attribute your hiring at animax to your time in the unc Asheville steam studio absolutely talk about that a little bit how so 
it was arts and engineering and the concepts that they can be both and trying to challenge your mind to make them both. We learned a lot of skill sets that involved working with our hands. And for Caitlin and I both, that gave us a certain level of confidence to go and work with our hands and actually learn firsthand how some of our tools and equipment work before we design something and send someone else out there to go do it. It gives us a heightened sense of design, I think. It also just helps me to be able to go out onto the floor where there's this huge separation between the engineers usually and everyone else. I don't feel as much that that exists. And I can go over there and ask them the questions and just know how to phrase questions or what I'm looking for. You know, they really taught you how to develop and talk through problems you're having in a design. Caitlin Thomas and Kyle Ward are partners who met at UNC Asheville and are working together at Animax Designs in Nashville. We've spent the past hour talking about the value of the arts in our community and in our workforce. We met people who amplify the arts in our rural hotspots, blend the arts into their career pursuits, and lobby for new ways to bring money into the arts. You'll find links to some of the information we talked about in the online version of this program. But the question we opened the show with is still an open one. What is our collective responsibility to publicly fund the arts? If you have some thoughts or answers, we'd like to hear from you. Comment on the post for this episode on Blue Ridge Public Radio's Facebook page or write me directly at mpiken, that's M-P-E-I-K-E-N, at bpr.org. I am Matt Piken, and you've been listening to The Porch on BPR News. Thanks so much for joining us.